you have your Bible this morning, turn to the book of Acts chapter 29 as we finish the study this morning in the book of Acts. Let me know when you get there. Acts chapter 29. So, no, no chapter 29, huh? Okay. The reason I did that is... We covered over the the course of this year, we started back in late January of last year, going through this study in the book of Acts, and we finished it two weeks ago. And I think to just stop at, you know, the end of chapter 28, which is, you know, Paul dwelt in his rented quarters for two whole years and and people coming and going freely, the end kind of leaves you hanging. Because the, the book of Acts is the book of history of the church and of the New Testament. And so many of of the New Testament books were written during the time of the book of Acts as we were going through it. But as we come to the end of the book of Acts, uh, it seems appropriate to me, and and I feel like, honestly, I feel in my heart I would be uh, irresponsible if I didn't say, so what is next? I mean, did it just end with chapter 28, verse 31, or whatever that last verse is? Was that it? And I don't think it was. I think we need to do just a little bit of a review. Uh, so today is going to be kind of fast-paced and, and uh, you know, quick-moving. But we're going to just go back and hit the highlights throughout the entire book of Acts. And then we're going to ask the question uh, we'll hear at the beginning, and we hopefully will answer it, which is, uh, what's next? Because you see, the church continues, doesn't it? Here we are. 2,000 years later. And as you think about God's people meeting all around the world on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and of course many times throughout the week, the Spirit of the Lord is alive and well. Redemption is real. And God's people are significant. And the history of the church didn't end with the last verse in Acts chapter 28. You see, it continues to this very day. The history of the church is continuing to be written. In Acts chapter 1, if you want to turn there, and we're, you know, just go ahead and put your finger there. At chapter 1, we're just kind of, kind of blow through the highlights all the way to chapter 28 today. Things that I feel were significant for us to, to both remember and to take with us as we go forward. But while the, the book of Acts is the history of the church, a good way to think of the book of Acts is the genesis of the church, the beginning. And in chapter 1, if you're there with me this morning, Acts chapter 1, it says, uh, beginning in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here in chapter 1, at the beginning, he, he through the Holy Spirit gave commandment to his apostles and to his disciples. And he spoke these words to him that we just read here culminating in verse 8, about receiving power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you see, the church began with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it always grieves me when I meet those people who uh, I would call um, cessationists, meaning people who don't believe that the ministry of the Spirit is for today. Uh, Certainly the Spirit is not speaking Scripture as He was in the times of the first century. But the ministry of the Spirit goes beyond just being indwelt by the Spirit. You may recall, if you've been with us through this study, that we've talked about what it means to have the Spirit come upon us. And we've seen the evidence of it here in the book of Acts, that when the Spirit came upon 
uh, the early church when he came upon the disciples, and then of course he came upon other church groups, as, and we'll look at some of that as we go through it today, as, as people believed so often the Spirit baptized them or he came upon them. And often in those early days, the evidence of the Spirit was given by uh, the gift of tongues, but it wasn't always given by the gift of tongues. Sometimes it was just given by the power, the evidence of the power that when people would speak the Word of God, the Word of God would go forth with power and prick people's consciences and convict them and draw them to the Lord. You see, I think we've been done a great disservice in the church that when we think about the ministry of the Spirit, we think about the sensational gifts or we think about, you know, people doing crazy things in the name of the Lord. But the ultimate measure of the power of the Spirit, I think, can be boiled down to two things. One is that those who are filled with God's Spirit minister in power. God's word has an effect on people. And when we open our lips and speak God's word, he ministers. And the second one is, as we've read about the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit many times in Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And after in many years, I've come to the conclusion that the, the main fruit of the Spirit is love expressing itself through those other mediums, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because they are all marks of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So when in chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus said that the church would begin when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, I'm just going to go ahead and give you the the preview of the end of the the chapter, of the end of the story, meaning how does Acts 29 happen? And it continues the same way it began, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit did come upon them, and they were indeed filled with the Spirit. And on that day... The Lord took the church from 120 people to 3,000 in about 10 minutes. Isn't that amazing to think as the, as the word of God was spoken in power, that those 3,000 people who heard the word of God in their language, speaking to their hearts, that they gave their lives to the Lord, that's power. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they began doing something that they had never done before, meaning the apostles and the disciples. They preached and they spoke in the power of the Spirit. You see, it wasn't just one human being trying to use persuasive words of wisdom to convince other human beings. It was people filled with the Holy Spirit speaking the words that God wanted them to speak at just the right moment. And then God, the Holy Spirit, taking those words and sending them directly, not only into the eyes and the ears, but into the heart of the listeners. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which by the way, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is always to draw people to God. See, the devil brings condemnation, which is guilt, and here's all the things you've done wrong today, and that kind of thing. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit, while he may say, yes, you did something wrong, is to draw you to repentance so that you may come to the place of restoration, so that you may walk in the newness and the freedom of life that he offers to us. And as they were speaking on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 39, for the promise, that is the promise of the Spirit and the promises of God's Word, for the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And here's the beautiful thing. We don't know who the Lord is calling. And so we want to be faithful just to be available to the Spirit and let God speak in and through us so that people will be called Verse 40 of chapter 2, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Then we come to verse 42 in chapter 2. And I'd call Acts 2.42 very much a model for the church. And if you'll let your eyes... uh, run over that verse and it says and they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine 
fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. You see, when the church gathers, we should hear the word of God, the apostles' doctrine. We should have fellowship, and the word there is koinonia, which means that we go beyond just saying, hi, how are you, how's the weather, too bad the Patriots lost on Thursday. And it goes beyond that, right? It goes to the heart, it goes to the soul, it goes to what's happening in your life, how are you doing with the Lord? So it's fellowship, it's the sharing of our lives together in union and communion. And then the breaking of the bread referred twofold, not only to sharing a meal together, such as a potluck, but more importantly to sharing the Lord's table together, to remembering the Lord. And you may remember that uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, speaking of the Lord's table, he said, as often as you do this, you proclaim his death until he comes. And so that's a part of what we do in the church. And then it said, finally, and in prayers. Emphasizing the importance and the need for prayer in our own lives. You see, prayer, in its simplest form, is just communication with God. And just like you talk to a friend or your spouse or a child or your parents, it's a conversation where we speak to the Lord. And then we be quiet and we listen for Him to speak. And so we pray and we do these things because this is what the Lord had intended his church to do. And this is an evidence of the Spirit, Acts 2.42, that this kind of thing is happening. And one of the other marks of the church, the early church, and it's supposed to be a mark of any church, is the mark of unity. And so many times we'll see as we read through the book of Acts, and they were all together in one accord. They were in agreement. Does that mean they agreed about everything in the world? Of course not. But it means they were unified about the one most important thing, the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Well, in chapter 3, as they went about life, as the Spirit has fallen upon them and empowered them and healed them, in chapter 3 we find that Peter and John, as they're going into the temple about the third hour of prayer, they encounter a lame man who had been there for many, many years. And they healed this lame man as he cried out to them. He often called out for alms. He was a beggar. He was a street uh, beggar. And in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we are reminded through that verse, money doesn't solve problems. Jesus does. And so what should we give people? Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter and John did that day and that healing opportunity provided an opportunity to provide the gospel, to preach the gospel there to everyone in the temple court. You remember it was a busy day. It was a busy time of day. And they preached and they spoke the name of the Lord. They said that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had been resurrected from the dead. And as it so often does, preaching drew opposition, it drew fire. And in chapter 3, verse 19, we find this wonderful verse where, where Peter said, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, that was a verse that was a call to salvation for those who had never responded to Christ, but it's also a verse that speaks to us as believers, as his children. You know, sometimes we can get a little stale, can't we, in our walk with Christ. And sometimes it's because we just kind of lost our way. We've gotten off the path. Maybe we've quit going to church. Maybe we've quit reading our Bibles. Maybe we've, we've quit being Acts 2.42. And so what do we need to do? We need to repent that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so letting the Lord minister to us. You see, it's, again, it's not condemnation, it's conviction, and conviction draws us back. When it's of the Spirit, it draws us back. It has this winsome, this endearing quality that says, yes, I want that, I want to be near that, I want to come back to the flame. In chapter 4, we find Peter and John being arrested for preaching and healing there in the temple court. 
And we find there in Acts 4a that Peter was then again filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he began to preach to the rulers and the elders of Israel because God provided him an opportunity to do that. And he said boldly in chapter 4 verse 12, there is salvation, there, nor is there salvation in any other, uh, for there is no other name under heaven uh, given among men by which we must be saved. And notice verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. See, we live in a society today that puts a high value on education, doesn't it? And there's nothing wrong with education. But you don't have to have a certain level of education to be used of God. You just have to be filled with His Holy Spirit. You see, the majority of the disciples were uneducated men. They were fishermen. They were tradesmen. They were people who, you know, they grew up working. And here, God is making a point using these men, using these disciples who came from all walks of life. Yes, there were educated people as a part of the disciple group. But the point here was to witness of the Lord. You see, it's never about us. Ministry is not about me. It's not about you. It's not about my credentials. It's only about the boldness of the Spirit of God working in my life and through my life to other people. They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You see, that's, a, that's your number one reason to not skip that time in the Word or that time in prayer. Because that thing you do in secret will be manifest in public. And our lives matter to God. Acts chapter 4 was such a great opportunity for Peter and John to minister and they were being persecuted there very early on in their faith. And down in Acts chapter 4 verse 29, uh, they had been persecuted. Now notice how they responded to persecution. Again, a model for us, verse 29 of chapter 4. Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. I don't know about you, but I desire that. I just want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. I want that for our church. And if you'd indulge me, I'd like to pray right now for God to do that with us. Lord, would you do these things with us? Would you shake us, Lord? Our lives, our thoughts, our sin. Lord, shake us up, stir us up. That you might fill us with your spirit. That you might have a home within us, God. Not just the dwelling, but a place where you're comfortable to dwell. And Lord, we want, to take, you want, we want you to take your holy fire and burn away the dross and the impurities and the chaff that's in our lives, Lord. Purify us that we might be vessels fit for the service of the King. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And it says in verse 33 of chapter 4, And with great power... The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. You could lay Acts 4.33 alongside Acts 1.8. It's an evidence of what it means that when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. And in chapter 5, we saw that the Lord began moving powerfully in the lives of his people. In verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. One of the the signs that God was working in and through his people is that other people were being saved. And we find this strange phenomenon happening in verse 15, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least a shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. I mean, you know that God's working when something crazy like that's happening. 
people believing in the power of the shadow of Peter passing by. But it's no different than you may remember when Jesus was here having his earthly ministry. Remember that day, the lady with the the hemorrhage of 10 years, she comes up behind Jesus in the crowd. And in her heart and her mind, she's like, if I can just touch the hem of the garment, I don't want to bother him. And she reaches through the crowd and touches his, his outer garment. It's like today it would be like our coat. And in that moment, she was healed and Jesus stopped and he says, who touched me? And you remember the apostles were like, what are we talking about? We're in a crowd of people. Everybody's touching you. He's like, no, no, I felt virtue. I felt power go out of me. And in that moment, he turned and he confronted her and she confessed. And she said, Lord, I just, I, I knew if I could touch you. And so often, you know, we want to touch, we want Jesus to touch us, but it goes both ways, doesn't it? That we would say, come to him. And that's what repentance is. We come to him. We return to him. And all of the Old Testament prophets, so many of them, especially the minor prophets, there's an echo in their writings that says, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, return to the Lord. And you see, it's not our job to sort of decipher where people are, you know, uh, they people who maybe grew up in a home and they got angry at God and they walked away or they've never known the Lord or whatever it is. Let's leave that up to the Holy Spirit. Just be faithful to love on people and minister to them. And so in Acts chapter 5, Peter uh, was arrested. An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors. And why do we need to, to sort of review these things? To remember that God's still alive and well and doing the same things. I think I've mentioned the book before, uh, there's many like this, a Chinese Christian brother, Yun, uh, the title of the book is The Heavenly Man, a Chinese believer, and he's still alive as far as I know, but he wrote that book out of his experience after he had gotten saved and being a part of the church in underground China, and God began to do things just like this, where during the middle of the night, he was awoken by an angel like Peter here and uh, led out of the jail. And they said, hey, didn't we strictly command you not to speak and to teach in the name of Jesus? Our laws are doing this today, aren't they? They're headed in that direction. Will we obey those laws? Or will we obey the law of God? Peter and the other apostles, Acts 5.29, great verse. They answered and they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And that should always be our motto. That ought to be the passion of our lives, that we would obey God rather than men, no matter what men say. We don't answer to men. On that great day when we stand before the throne of God, we won't be answering to men or to a man. We'll be answering to God and to God alone. So... Acts 5 ends with this beautiful verse. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You see, we're we're such a a soft marshmallow society, right? When something happens, we're just kind of like, ah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to create a disturbance. I don't want any problems. But see, they didn't care about that. They only cared about obeying God no matter what the consequences might be. And they rejoiced that they were persecuted. Because God was doing a great work. In chapter 6, we see the church growing to such an extent that there was a need for deacons. There was a need for servants. And the work of the ministry, the church, always needs servants. And you remember there as these servants were called because of the serving of the, the tables to the Hellenists. The apostle said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that's so important, isn't it, for those who have that ministry. The ministry of the word, the ministry of serving the church directly that they be freed up to do that and that there be servants who take care of the other things, sort of the busy work, but the necessary things, the things that have to happen. 
And I'm so grateful for so many people here who have a servant mentality and if they see something that needs to be done, they just do it. Cleaning the church, making coffee, decorating, sweeping, saying hello to people, greeting, serving the children and we could go on. It's so important, but there's many ways to serve God. And so to make ourselves available as servants of God. And the word servant, doulos, can mean a servant, it can mean bondservant, it can mean slave. Uh, there's also a word, you know, for minister, which just means to lay your life down and to do what God uh, puts before you to do. And so as the service happened, as that service of those deacons, of those servants, enabled the ministry of the word... And we see in verse 7 of chapter 6, Then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Really? Over people who serve tables? Yes. Because they took care of important things. You see, service is never, don't think of it as menial. Don't think of it as low. Don't think of it as there's this and there's this. You see, in the eyes of God, if we're serving God, then we're all on this level. And just like when Paul talks about the ministry of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Romans chapter 12 and other places, there's not one gift or one person who has a gift who's greater than another person. All of the gifts are equal in the sense that God wants to use those gifts for His glory and for the good of His church. And so often the gifts of the Spirit are used to both encourage and edify and exhort And so no matter what gift you have, whether you're a mouth or you're a foot, it's all important to the Lord. Then we see in chapter 7 the ministry of Stephen. And remember, Stephen was one of those deacons, but God used him in a mighty way to preach the gospel. And of course, Stephen became the first martyr of the church in chapter 8. Chapter 7 and 8 and... Uh, In chapter 8, we see the appearance of this man, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the church. He was one of the chief opponents of the gospel. And so while Stephen was raised up and his ministry was brief, but it was powerful, it was impactful, God also raised up this man, Philip, in chapter 8, who was also one of the the seven deacons listed there in chapter 6. And now Philip goes down and he begins preaching and the Holy Spirit leads him down to Samaria and he preached Christ to them and then he led him out on the the Gaza road to chase a chariot and found an Ethiopian eunuch there and begins to preach the gospel to him and that, that man gets saved, gets baptized in a little pool of water and then he goes on home to Ethiopia and we don't know fully what happened. Church history tells us that he did become uh, a powerful influence in the church down in Ethiopia. And God has his ways, doesn't he, of using us to talk to people. And we can never over or underestimate the power of one soul in the hand of the Lord. So we have to learn, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, that where it says that for we walk by faith, not by sight, not to view people through the lens of my own eyeballs, but to see people through the lens of faith. Because thank God, as we sit here today, if you know him, if you're saved, if you're a child of God, thank God that he saved you, that he cared about you. And he wants to do that same thing for everybody. And so the way we look at and value people should be hopefully the same way that God does. And how does that happen? By the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so in chapter 8, this awakening breaks out and Simon the sorcerer comes on the scene. He's a servant of Satan, but he soon becomes a servant of the Lord. And Peter and John go down to to. Samaria to see about the work that Philip was doing and they come specifically to bring the ministry of the Spirit and they laid hands on people and they prayed for them and they received the Spirit in a powerful way and while this work is going on God's working in the heart of this man called Saul of Tarsus in chapter 9 this man was a, a violent persecutor of the church 
And so one day he's on his way to persecute the church up in the area of Damascus. And on that road, he met Jesus. And we know the story there in chapter 9, and it's such a beautiful story. But here's the point. You know, Saul was an angry man. He was a violent man. He later says in his recounting to Timothy, he says, I was an insolent man. That's a, that's a word we don't hear very often today, right? I was insolent. He was vile. He was angry. And he wanted the church to suffer. He wanted those Christians to repent or die. And yet the Lord spoke to him and turned him around. So Saul meets Jesus. Saul's life becomes, he becomes a slave. And if you look at Paul's greetings to the churches, he so often says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a bondservant, a slave. And that's how he viewed himself from that day on. And then Cornelius in chapter 10, this man, this Gentile man, is spoken to by the Lord. And he says, hey, send for Peter. Peter's down at the house, down the street. And so Peter has this vision up on the roof. And as God speaks to him uh, through this vision of the sheet coming down with the unclean animals, he's sort of hammering this message with Peter saying, listen, don't call unclean that which I've called clean. And while he was doing these things to Peter, he was breaking down Peter's prejudices. He was breaking down Peter's traditional mindset of a good Jewish man. And he's saying, no, you need to understand my heart is for Gentiles as much as it is for Jews. And I think about in that, that lesson of what links does God have to go to to get a word through to my thick skull and to my hard heart as he spoke that day to Peter. And he spoke to him three times and so often the Lord spoke to Peter three times, didn't he? And so Peter, he gets to Cornelius' house. He's like, I don't even know what I'm doing here, but he brought a bunch of guys with him to be witnesses. And as he's sort of saying, well, I'm here, and he starts to speak mid-sentence before he even gave a gospel invitation or anything. He's just sort of in his introductory portion of his message, and all of a sudden, bam, the Holy Spirit fell upon these Gentiles. And in Acts 10, 44 through 48, you see that whole thing there where the Spirit came upon them. The Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. And here's something we learn about this whole idea of how God wants to work and move. And it's this, there's no formula. There's no formula for how, how and when a person's baptized by the Spirit or what God wants to do in their lives. You know, some people say, well, you have to do this and there's this series of steps and all of that. And I don't know where they get it from because when you read the Bible, it happened 10 or 15 different ways in the, the book of Acts. <clears throat> so... These people were obviously willing. They were waiting upon the Lord. They were waiting for Peter to come and bring the word. And so the Lord just decided, you know what, Peter, I don't need your message. I'm just going to save them and I'm just going to fill their lives and I'm going to baptize them and they're just going to begin to worship me. When Pastor Roger was here last week, I had hoped he would share this story that he shared with me in private, Uh, but he didn't give me the details so I can't... uh, I won't be violating any confidence here. But in one of the outreaches they did, uh, as they intend to do here, uh, they went to this particular church and they had their team and they arrived on site at the church and they were going going to begin their week of ministry. But the pastor wouldn't come out of his office. And he stayed in his office the whole week and he wouldn't go on the street and they later discovered he was just crippled by fear. Uh, He could only stand in the pulpit. He couldn't walk the street. He couldn't mention the name of Jesus in public. He was just filled with fear. So they began praying for him and, you know, they left. And a short time after they left, this man, this fear-filled pastor, had an encounter where something like this happened, where the Spirit of God came upon him and he said he got a phone call that this man himself was out on the street now walking the streets, handing out tracts, speaking to people about Jesus. And all of a sudden, the Lord began to move in that city through this man who was previously filled with fear, 
but who then became filled with the Spirit. So in chapter 11, Peter recounts the story of God's work and he defends God's grace to those who would, were the critics of what God was doing and how God was doing it, as if Peter had any say in how God did what he did. But he began to just tell them what God was doing and the gifts of the Spirit are moving there in the church in Jerusalem. And we see this man Agabus come onto the scene and he makes a prophetic utterance about a coming famine, which was uh, validated there in the scriptures and by secular history that this famine came upon the then known world. And then in chapter 12, Herod begins to harass the church and he puts Peter in prison. And you see now this pattern that as the word is going forth and as the Lord is moving and as the Lord is working, that opposition arises. And here's the lesson in that. Opposition is normal. In fact, it's to be expected when people are doing the work of the Lord. So just because there's opposition does not mean it's a closed door. In fact, from the point of view of the gospel, it's an indication that we should go forward. And we continue to minister in the face of persecution. So Herod uh, puts Peter in prison, and I think I got my story mixed up because this is the place where the angel delivers Peter from the prison cell. And he comes to that prayer meeting happening in John Mark's house. And he joins that prayer meeting. And again, they just thank God for what he was doing and prayed that he would continue to work. And in that moment, Herod because he had stood up against the Lord, God struck him dead there at the end of chapter 12. And it says he was eaten by worms. Crazy way to die. And then in chapter 13, we come to this amazing turning point in the book of Acts, where a group of leaders are gathered in a little room and they're fasting and they're praying and they're ministering to the Lord at the church in Antioch of Syria, which is there was the church in Jerusalem and now there's the church of Antioch of Syria. And the church of Antioch of Syria has become the missionary sending church. It's become the outpost to send the gospel to the whole world. And so as this group of leaders are there ministering and fasting, notice what it says in verse 2 of chapter 13. And as they ministered to the Lord. Isn't it crazy to think that we could minister to the Lord? that he would in any way be encouraged by anything I have to say or bring to him. But he is. And I always think when I read this of a little kid bringing their little crazy crayon drawing and you have no idea what they scribbled. And they're like, hey, dad, I made this for you. And you're like, oh, that's so awesome. And I think that's what it's like when we minister to the Lord. That he's just so grateful that we come. He doesn't care what we brought just that we came. And we wanted to be there with him. And so they ministered to the Lord. They fasted. They prayed. And while they were waiting on the Lord in that moment, and this is, by the way, if you're wondering, this is one of the many common ways that God works. When we are in quiet, when we are in silence, when we're waiting on the Lord, when we're praying, when we're just saying, God, I just want to be close to you. Things like this happen where it says, now the... the Separate to me, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And so as they were being sent out there in chapter 13, we have the, the beginning of the first missionary journey as we know it. And so they begin to sail down to Cyprus and they go up to this other Antioch, Antioch of Pisidia. And God begins to move powerfully through the preaching and the teaching of his word. And many are saved and many are filled with the spirit as they go and as they preach and as they teach. And then many are, as they are filled with the spirit, we're told in that passage there in chapter 13 that many were filled with joy. And I always wonder why that particular fruit was sort of called out in that passage. But I think perhaps it's so that we might understand, you see, when we are interacting with people, when, we're, when we get close to people, you know, people can have peace and love and all of that, and that's so important, and kindness. Those are all things that are desperately needed in our world today. But joy? Think about this. How many people do you know, how many times do you see someone... Now, I'm not talking about somebody who's happy. That you see, see someone and you say, that person is filled with joy. 
I believe that joy can only be used speaking of the joy of the Lord. That's the only place joy makes any sense. If we use it as a synonym for happiness, it waters down what it means. The Holy Spirit and joy are synonymous. So, if a person is filled with the Spirit, I think joy will be one of those key things that are manifested in that person's life. In chapter 14, they made it all the way up to Iconium, and as they get there, they meet with a violent reaction to the gospel. They healed a lame man, and then uh, Paul gets drug out of the city. They, they leave him for dead, and they think he's, you know, they've, they've taken care of him. They've silenced his voice. But when they went out of the city, the disciples gathered around him, and we can only assume that what they did was pray, and whether he was dead or, or, or not fully, we don't know. But in that moment, God raised him up. And I would imagine after someone is stoned, that if you're not dead, you wish you were dead because of how you felt. But God raised him up. And they continued preaching. It even says they went back into the same city that had just stoned him and they went back to the same people. They sort of circled back to those churches where they were met with a violent response. And they continued preaching, even though they were threats. And you may remember when Jesus spoke to Peter back in the book of Matthew. Jesus said, you know, who do men say that I am? And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And then Peter spoke up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In verse 18 of Matthew 16, a verse we all ought to have underlined. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in this last phrase, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You see, when we're facing persecution, we tend to think, well, where's God? And he's right here in Matthew 16, 18. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against my church. You see, we can't evaluate things in the short term. We can't look at something and say, because a, a battle was lost, a skirmish, because there was persecution that, it, you know, it's not happening, it's not successful. If... If the book of Acts proves anything to us of the many things, one of the things is that we always stand in the face of persecution. Why? Because Jesus is with us. Because we know the story. If you, if you don't know the story, turn to Revelation 21 and 22 and read that. That's the end of the book. That's how everything ends. And guess where we are? We're with Jesus we're with him in heaven. We're a part of his army. We're a part of the saints. We're, 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 we're with the end crowd. Why? Because of the blood of Christ, not because of anything we've done. And so when persecution comes, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And then at the end of chapter 14, we come to the end of the first journey. Chapter 15, of course, is the Jerusalem Council and their decree in dealing with people who said there's different ways that people had to be saved. And of course, the Jerusalem Council had to come back and say, no, there's only one way that people can be saved. And then they prepare to go back out on the second journey, but they have a disagreement. That is Paul and Barnabas over this young man, John Mark, who was actually Barnabas's nephew. And every time I read that story and, you know, they split and they went their separate ways, it always breaks my heart. You know, some people will say, well, you know, that was there because God wanted to form two teams and send them in different direction. And I, I honestly don't accept that. I don't believe that. Uh, I see this disagreement and I see the, as you read the, the passage there at the end of 15, the language, I've looked up the words, it's just so harsh in the way they these two men of God had a moment of the flesh where they, they, they fought with one another. But nonetheless, Paul continues. He takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark. John, Barnabas and John Mark go one way. Paul and Silas go another. And as they go back now to places that they had been, Paul goes back to Derby and Lystra. And who does he encounter? This young man named Timothy who ends up becoming for him his son in the faith. And Paul takes him and circumcises him so that it, there wouldn't be trouble as Paul went into the synagogues. And he begins to make disciples one-on-one, -on -one, starting with this man, Timothy. 
And we find in the book of Philippians how Paul thought of Timothy in Philippians 2.19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character, that is a son with his father who served with me in the gospel. This young man, Paul took under his arm, poured his life into him. And I'm guessing that was in part because he didn't have a son of his own. And that to me speaks about the fact that whether you have kids or not, or maybe you've raised your kids and they're gone, we still have time as long as there's breath to be mentoring other people, to be spending time with them. In fact, Paul later wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I take that to mean that every able-bodied Christian who's spiritually healthy, should be reproducing. We should be spending time sharing our lives with someone. We, in, my, in my view, and you can, you can disagree with me and that's fine, all of us ought to be making a disciple, at least one. I think we should be doing that. Because this is a way of passing along the gospel. We should be doing it with our kids. We should be doing it with friends and co-workers and I think it ought to be deliberate and I think we ought, we ought to be meeting with people. And by the way, this is what our Bible studies are about. We do it in groups as well. Men, women, whomever. We're getting together, we're sharing our lives together, we're sharing the word with one another and we're doing what Paul did with Timothy. And we see what happened after Paul died and was gone. Timothy uh, was involved in ministry. He pastored the church in Ephesus for a time, church history tells us. And, you know, pouring our lives into people. And then we get into to Acts 16, and we find this beautiful passage that I remember. I love this passage in, in 16, 6 through 10, about God's will and God's leading in our lives. And, we, and this passage speaks to how uh, Paul and the team were you know, they just wanted to serve the Lord and they were traveling and they're like, well, let's go this way and the Holy Spirit closed the door and let's go this way and the Holy Spirit closed the door. And they, they just wanted to serve Jesus, but then the Holy Spirit directed them in the way that they should go. He directs them to Macedonia. They get there, they come into the city of Philippi, the foremost city, and they meet several people there. In this crazy encounter, they met Lydia down by the river and she became saved and then took them and her whole household got saved. And apparently she became sort of, you know, the, the beginning of that church in Philippi and then as Paul and Silas were traveling around the city, this demon-possessed slave girl was coming behind them shouting out, you know, these men are men of the Most High God. Paul said, we don't need publicity from Satan. Cast the demon out. They got thrown into prison while they're in prison, they've gotten beaten and they're just there at midnight singing praise to God and just licking their wounds, so to speak. And then the Lord shakes the prison. The Philippian jailer comes in thinking he's going to die. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Sitting outside the jail cell, listening to them, praising and singing to the Lord. And God just opened his heart, took them to his house, cleaned their wounds, his whole house gets saved. So now you have this wealthy businesswoman, this demon-possessed slave who's been healed, and now you have this blue-collar employee of the federal government, and they've all gotten saved, and these are the people whom God's formed the church in Philippi from. Isn't that amazing? God wants to do these kinds of things over and over and over. Paul and Silas are probably there only about a week before God moves them on. They go to Thessalonica. They're there for three weeks. They establish a church. Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians to them out of that. What a, you read those, those letters and you think, man, you covered all that stuff in three weeks? That's amazing. He goes to Berea, spends time with them. It says these were people who were more, more noble-minded or fair-minded than the, those in Thessalonica and they received the word with all readiness. 
And I read the letter to the Thessalonians and I think, man, Paul said, you received the word eagerly. And it says of the Bereans, you received the word more eagerly than the Thessalonians did. And Paul has this amazing thing that happens in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And then he walked into Athens, straight into a brick wall. And in Athens, it was a pagan, heathen city to the max. And he goes in there and he's troubled. He's by himself. His companions are elsewhere. So he's dependent on the Lord. And he walks right into the Areopagus or Mars Hill as we know it. And just walks right into the stadium of idols and begins preaching the gospel. You talk about boldness. You talk about the filling of the Spirit. No real fruit, as far as we know, came from that time in Athens. And that was an unusual thing. You know, Paul wasn't accustomed to walking into a city and preaching and leaving and not having a church established. But that's what happened in Athens. He walks into Corinth next. Chapter 18, meets Achilla and Priscilla. Silas and Timothy rejoin him. The Corinthians are a tough crowd. They don't exactly receive the word in the way that Paul had hoped, but they did, many of them did, and they became believers. And while they were there, uh, Paul was obviously in fear, and he said in uh, chapter 18, verse 9, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid. But speak, do not keep silent, for I am with you. For no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And then he continues on for 18 months. Most of the places he goes, he's only there for a short time, but God opens doors. Chapter 19, he made it to Ephesus. And the most amazing thing to me that happened in Ephesus came down in verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books and together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. The gospel had so impacted and transformed their lives that their repentance was visible. Well, they brought out everything that was an enigma to them, everything that was not of the Lord. And they burned it. They said it's of no value. These are weights. These are things that are hindrances. And they they burned them. They purged their lives of those things. Their lives were dramatically affected. And then as Paul preaches there in Ephesus, as is always the case, truth stirs things up. Because truth shines the light and the darkness. And when that happens, the cockroaches and the demons scramble back for the corners of darkness. And so Paul continues to preach, not afraid any longer. He's already been stoned. He's already died. He's already been through so much persecution. His body is broken. He's like, at this point, what can they do to me? So Paul wants to circle back now to the churches where where he had previously ministered and we have in chapter 20 this amazing story of Paul meeting with the Ephesian elders on the beach of Miletus. A great read and good instruction even to today's leaders and elders. Chapter 21, he's headed back to Jerusalem because he wants to fulfill this passion of preaching one last time the gospel to his Jewish brothers. Yet along the way, people are speaking, saying, Paul, when you get back there, there's going to be trouble. Paul went anyway. In 22, he addresses the crowd in Jerusalem. The third missionary journey has ended. He's now in Jerusalem trying to preach this one last time to his brothers. They attempt to kill him. The Roman guards have to rescue him. 23, the Sanhedrin is divided and They're trying to find a way to kill Paul if it's possible. And Paul uh, appeals and says, I want want a fair trial. I'm a Roman citizen. So they send him out to Caesarea to Felix. Felix. He's there for two years. Felix basically has nothing to do with him. Leaves him in jail. He gets taken out. Now Festus comes in. Excuse me, he appeared appeared to Caesar before... um, Felix, and then Agrippa comes. And so Paul goes through all these things. 
And he does what the Lord told him he would do. He, he defends the gospel before kings, before people of influence. And then he makes his way to Rome and he gets to Rome. And he has to go through Malta on the way and he goes through that storm. We've been talking about these things the last few weeks. Shipwreck on Malta, bitten by a snake. They expected him to die, but God delivered him. And then God opened the door to minister to the leading Roman citizen of that area, Publius. And Publius' father, they find out, was uh, deathly ill. Paul goes in and heals him. And then all of a sudden, that opens the door for ministry. And all these people come, they want to be healed. And the gospel gets spread through this shipwreck. And they go through this violent storm, all because it seems that God wanted to bring the gospel to this little island over here, a few hundred miles off course from where they were going. And then he finally makes it to Rome. And as we said earlier, we come back to the end. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And now what? Here's what. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and I think just fast forwarding to the church today, to where are we? Because we're living in Acts 29. Galatians chapter 3, if you have your Bible, turn there. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now I want to apply this to us, but also in looking at the church at large today in the 21st century, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? We want God to move. The church began by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the church will continue and persist because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But if we quench and we grieve the work of the Holy Spirit by the way we live our lives or by the way we do church, then we need to stop and we need to cast those things off. You know, too often today, I mean, we've seen it so many times and we've probably all done it in some place at a time or another. But when we go looking for a new church, we have our little church shopping list, right? Just like when you go to the grocery store. All right, well, I've got my kids with me. Do they have children's ministry? Do they have Awanas? You know, blah, 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 right? And, you got, and it's got to be this, and it's got to be this kind of worship, and, you know, the preaching has to be this way, and, you know, whatever. They've got to have this kind of ministry and that kind of ministry. When, in fact, what we should be looking for, and I'm not saying those ministries are unimportant and God doesn't use them. Of course he does. But we've, we've brought a 21st century consumer mentality to the church. What we should be looking for is this Word of God and the Spirit of God working in and through the lives of His people. I want to see God working. I want to see God moving. I don't want to be in the, the flesh. I want to be in the Spirit. And to encourage us to continue onward and upward, Zechariah chapter 4, maybe you know this passage. So I'm just reading a portion. There's always a context. Go back and read it and check me on this. But Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of, the, the, of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. See, it's the Spirit. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? No, we must continue in the Spirit. Zechariah says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then to close with what we read at the beginning. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
What is Acts 29? Acts 29 is we are witnesses to him. See, the purpose of the church, I believe, is that we're a witness to Jesus. And if we're doing that, if we get that one thing right, and we do it well, and we do it in the power of the Spirit, God will bless it. And so my encouragement to us as we, we sort of close the book on, on, on the book of Acts, so to speak, and, you know, we've come to the end of this study, we've spent the better part of this year going through it, is that God will have built into our lives and into our church a dependency upon the Spirit and that we want to be available to Him and allow Him to use our lives for His glory. So Lord, we come this morning, we thank You for what You've spoken to us. We thank You for Your goodness. We love You, Lord. And we love you because you first loved us. And so God, we're grateful. And so may this sort of overview of what you've spoken to us these last few months just bring us to that place of yielding fully to you and allowing you to have your way in our lives, Lord. God, fill us this morning with your spirit. Let this church Let all of your people, Lord, not just this church, all the churches in this city, Lord, we need to see an awakening. We need to see a revival. And we ask you to do it, God. You have no favorite kids. We're all your kids if we believe in you, if we trust you, if we've come to you, if we've believed in the name of Christ. So Lord, use us, stir up your people, especially now in this place, in this city. And begin doing a work, Lord, in these last days. One last push before you come back for your church and before you start the time of the tribulation that we may be used, Lord, to be your witnesses. We pray for that outpouring of your spirit and for an in-harvest of souls. Lord, your word says that the fields are white unto harvest. Lord, do something, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.